I'm Natalie Kasika, and this is 52 Weeks, 52 Books, 52 Women, the podcast. Think back, if you're old enough, to the news that was dominating the airwaves almost two decades ago this summer. Drawing a blank? It had to do with a president behaving badly. That summer, President Bill Clinton, after months of denial, admitted in grand jury testimony that he had had an inappropriate relationship with intern Monica Lewinsky. Pretty soon after that, the impeachment train was lulling. It's that scandal that is clearly the inspiration for Gabrielle Zevin's new novel, Young Jane Young. And Gabrielle joins me now from Los Angeles, California. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Now, this is a novel about Aviva Grossman, a young political intern who has an affair with a congressman um, that gets found out. He skates by without too much of a blemish, but her life is ruined, uh, so much so that she disappears and takes on a new identity. Why did you have to have her take that extremist step? Um, You know, I was thinking about the internet and how it never forgets anything. And so it used to be if you made a mistake, you could just move to another town and start again. But now if you make a mistake, um, even if it doesn't have you know, a scandal that's as big as big as Monica Lewinsky or something like that, even if you make a relatively small mistake in your town, it's on the internet forever. That's <laughs> so true. I kind of thought that was the only way even, you know, Monica herself could save herself because she's always uh, Monica Lewinsky no matter where she goes. Someone told me a funny story, which was that they knew her. Um, And that during the time of the scandal, she was so famous that you could just put an envelope with Monica on it and it would manage to get to her house in Beverly Hills. Oh my God, that's like (laughs) Santa Claus. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so if you imagine that, like, I mean, I really saw that when I thought through what her situation was, I really thought maybe that would be the only way she would have a chance of starting again. Yeah, it's such an extreme uh, step. Now you tell the tale uh, through the eyes of several different uh, Rachel Grossman, Aviva's mother, uh, Aviva as a young woman, and then Aviva later as as Jane Young, um, the person she has become, Jane's teenage daughter, Ruby, and the congressman's wife, uh, Ember. Why did you want to draw all those different female perspectives together? Um, you know, the first part I wrote of the book was the second part, which was the Jane Young part. And that was this woman who was having dreams of a person like Monica Lewinsky, Aviva Grossman, but we didn't necessarily know, I didn't necessarily know that Jane was um, Aviva at that time, Um, but I didn't necessarily think I had a book until I had the voice of Jane's and Aviva's mother, Rachel. Um, I think so often what happens when we have these scandals is, you know, we are able to sort of dehumanize the woman at the center of them and we forget that they have mothers, fathers, histories, complicated stories that came before, reasons, you know, in service of this one story, which is to basically call this woman a slut. Um, but I think if, you know, you think about the mother and you think about the grandmother and you think about the daughter and you think about all the people um, that are in a scandal, it changes uh your perspective on the scandal, you know? So in a way I needed all these perspectives to offer, to I think give the reader something like an empathy for mm-hmm. for Viva. You know, the other thing was that I uh, was interested in telling 
a story that had the point of view of women of different ages. All the women in the story right. are different ages. Originally, they were all the sections were going to be titled like by the age of the character in them. Um, you know, and because I think th that a story can change based on the age you are when you're telling the story, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so essentially they're telling the same story, but their perspective in life, you know, changes the story yeah, in some way. It gives it a real uh, richness. Um, now, your book is about really how we as a society respond towards women and judge them in their morality. Uh, and in a way we never do to men, uh, particularly comes when it comes to a sex scandal, you know, Aviva says, I'm not a murderer, I'm just a slut, and you can't be acquitted of that. Um, that is a very short <laughs> sentence, but incredibly powerful. It, actually, I think it was on NPR. They asked me, uh, why doesn't the congressman suffer? Why didn't I decide to punish him? And I was like, because he's a man, because they tend not to get punished ever. Um, you know, and, and so I do think it, it, it's, it's amazing, you know, when you think about either um, Monica Lewinsky or Aviva in my story, they have committed no crimes except for being, uh, no actual crimes. Their only crime is sort of a personal one of being young and dumb. Um, and it is amazing how much we hold on to those things. And, and I'll give you an example of that. Monica Lewinsky wrote a piece last February, maybe about Roger Ailes, where she talked about who profited from the, mm -hmm. you know, the scandal. And certainly it wasn't her, but I was interested because I knew I'd be promoting the book this fall as to how people responded to her in the comments uh, below her article. And it was amazing to me, two decades later, you know, people were still so angry at her. I'm like, and she's an entirely different person now, <laughs> you know? Like, I'm like, who are you angry with exactly? There was right. only one woman in the comments that I saw at the time I read them, and they probably had many, many more than I read, um, who had any empathy for her. And she was somebody who was a fellow White House intern. And she said that, you know, what people felt, what the other female interns felt was relieved that it wasn't them. <laughs> because the force of Bill Clinton's charisma at that time was so great that any one of them could have been uh, susceptible to his charms. And, you know, so, but that's a long-winded answer of saying it is very difficult for a woman to ever escape uh, being a wronged woman. I mean, or being a, excuse me, yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, she is a wronged woman and you can't help but feel it that she was the wronged party who had to suffer in exile. Now, <laughs> I'll be honest, I can't but feel that many of us probably didn't feel that way about Monica Lewinsky at the time. Did you write it that way in part because you yourself wanted to reevaluate your own judgment of Monica Lewinsky? Definitely. Um, I had, when I started writing this book, I had seen a picture of Monica Lewinsky today. So today being like 2015 or something. And I was struck by how young she looked. Um, and I thought, my God, if she's that young today, how young was she then? And so that was the first thing it made me think about because I remember feeling as a young woman, I'm a couple of years younger than Monica Lewinsky, incredibly judgmental of her um, at that age. You know, like I would never act yes. that way, et cetera, et cetera. But now at the age I am, and that's about 10 years younger than Bill Clinton was at the time of the scandal, what I feel is incredibly judgmental of him. <laughs> You know, I think I would never behave that way if I had interns of my own. I would certainly, I think it's completely unacceptable as the leader of the free world um, to act in such a way. And I also, you know, think that in a way the story we were sold 
is crazy because nobody gets to seduce the president without the president's consent. It's too difficult. There's too many barriers. There's like literally barriers, like secret service agents. So the idea that we're sold this like, you know, Lolita intern, <laughs> it's actually insane. You know, it's quite delusional. And, and I struggled with all of these issues because, you know, I'm a Democrat, a lifelong Democrat. Um, and, you know, and I do understand, you know, sometimes how you can definitely support a candidate or, you know, an elected person um, and have deep problems with their sort of personal beliefs um, or their personal conduct. And so, you know, I think the struggle with that is maybe the reason why even at the time, you know, feminists didn't strongly condemn him 20 years ago. Right. I mean, there was a real ability to compartmentalize. Yeah. I mean, because he's good on, he was good on women's issues, basically. And, you know, also he had what we felt was a very strong wife. And so on some level, you know, there was a moral relativism at play that allowed us to kind of, you know, say, no, no, it's okay. It's okay. But I'm not sure that it is okay. <laughs> now, looking at it at this age, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, but who knows? <laughs> well, it's interesting to me that you chose to set the novel around 2000, 2001, while the Lewinsky scandal was still fresh. Why tell the story from that period of time, the early days of the internet, but before social media? Why not tell the story from our perspective of today, you know, an event like that? Right. I mean, I had two reasons for that. Um, The first reason was, and it's something Monica Lewinsky talks about in her TED Talk, that she was really ground zero for internet shaming. You know, that we never had a scandal that it had existed in that way before, both the sort of like um, 24 hour news coverage, but also the first thing on the Internet where you could really find out anything you wanted at any moment about this scandal um, that allowed it to play out in a way that was far more intense than any of these sorts of scandals that had hit before. And so I thought that was interesting, that moment. Um culturally. But also, I needed to give this character enough time to show what her life would be going forward, you know, so I didn't want to set the end of the book in the future, I wanted to set the end of the book now, you know, so on some level that because I needed to tell a story that spanned 20 years, you know, (laughs) that gets you to the... Yeah, you had to go backwards, yeah. Yeah. Um, Now, your picture of Embeth, the embarrassed wife of the congressman who stands by her man, is also very empathetic. Uh, And I was struck by one of the things when we encounter her 15 years later, you write about what she thinks about herself. The truth was being cheated on was not that bad. It was being cheated on in public that was hard. It was wearing the ill-fitting shroud of the wronged woman. It was standing next to him meekly when he apologized. It was figuring out where to cast your gaze and choosing the right suit jacket. What suit jacket would say? Supportive, feminist, unbroken optimistic. What one effing suit jacket could possibly accomplish that? I love that paragraph. <laughs> how, many, how many political sex scandals did you study for research? Did you see something different over the years from how Hillary Clinton uh, reacted versus other more recent um, scandals that we've seen? You know, it's funny. I think the visual is remarkably consistent across the decades. <laughs> You know, that it's, it is always, it's always exactly the same way. The man is at the podium, the woman is to the side. And usually, um, usually I think it's to his right side, you know, because she's the right hand man. 
Um, and she's wearing something not too flashy, you know, something that's going to make her sympathetic to the broadest number of people possible. Um, and she can't, you know, she has to hold her face in such a way. And I think it's the closest thing we have to a true political theater. And by political theater, I mean sort of the beginning of like Shakespeare, the beginning of King Lear, you know, where we go through these sorts of like motions of decorum. You know, we really enjoy seeing this play out. And, you know, I feel for the women, because it's usually women, because uh, female politicians don't tend to get themselves into this kind of trouble for a variety of reasons. But, you know, I really feel for the women that are kind of forced actors in this little play that we like to see. You're right. That is for the benefit of this man keeping his job. You know, it's what it's meant to say. And it's essentially a lie, by the way. What it's meant to say is, look, the wife is fine with it. So you, you know, the public should also be fine with this. But in fact, that isn't quite true. We should only be fine with whatever has happened if, say, the politician involved didn't, you know, use public funds or somehow abuse his position of power to conduct this affair. You know, so it's a totally different thing. It's, it's a lie to say that if the wife is fine with it, you as the public should be fine with it. And yet that's what this little show is meant to do. Right. And us. she kind of has to figure out her own role in this play that she didn't know she was going to be in. Um, right down <laughs> to her costume. Um, <laughs> right down to yeah. her costume, you know, and it, and it's hard, it's hard, you know, that it's, it's interesting every time we sort of have a new first lady. Cause I think about that too, you know, again, how, how much like they are not meant to surprise us in any way, you know, right. <laughs> but they're, they're really meant to present themselves in ways that we find non-threatening, very consistent, even Melania Trump, who is, you know, a very colorful first lady in many ways compared to the people that came before dresses in a way that's very consistent with a the idea of, of a first lady. So at the very least you can look like the paper doll version exactly. of a first lady. Exactly. You know? Now Jane um, you know, has established a life for herself. She's living in Maine. She's in her mid thirties. She's a wedding planner. She has a smart, independent teenage daughter, Ruby. Um, they're incredibly close, but um, Jane is uh, Jane is encouraged to run for public office, something that she had wanted to be involved in, which is why she ended up working at a congressman's office. Um, and this, of course, leads to her secret being revealed, and Ruby finds out. Um, I I I loved that. I loved Ruby, and um, I was curious as to as you thought about that plot development between the two um were there sort of lessons that you wanted to impart through ruby um as you wrote it right you know i think that the moment for ruby is the moment it's actually a kind of common moment in any young person's life the moment where you discover that your parents had a life before you that had nothing to do with you and has and also have dreams that have nothing to do with you. You know, and this can be a jarring moment as a young person. I think the discovery that, I guess, to put it more simply, that your parent is a person. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, so I think that's, on some level, her experience is, is a common one. But I also think, um, you know, I wanted to write a really young person, a really young woman, I should say, grappling with being a feminist. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> you know, and how it's actually really difficult to be a feminist sometimes when it's 
say very close to home. Like when you are dealing with a situation where you feel that your mother um, is a disgraced woman, it's that's when you have to really put your feminist theories about things <laughs> into a difficult practice, you know? So, so that's what I wanted to write about with that section. Well, it is interesting because it is a book about feminism and looking at, at it through the lens of now, let's just say even 20 years ago. I don't know when you were writing the book, but did the 2016 campaign add more fodder for your thoughts on women and politics <laughs> and the circumscribed role for women in politics, even now? Yes, definitely. Um, so I think that 2016 campaign um, was intense, but but particularly even before that, the primary between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, I was fascinated with because it seemed like um, huge numbers of millennial women were going for Bernie Sanders over Hillary Clinton, which surprised me a little bit. And so I started to ask myself a question, like, why was that happening? And also, B, um, should a woman always vote for a woman candidate, uh, no matter what? Um, and I know that seems like a, like an, uh, like a Swiftian sort of satirical proposal and yet I think there's an argument to be made for it you know women are 51 percent of the population yet we have like 20 percent of the seats in the congress and there's so many states have never had a female governor included both the states where I live most of my life which are California New York and so when I think about all those things it's not so shocking that we woke up um, in November to a country that did not have the first female president because there are so many states in our country that are not used to voting for a woman for anything um right and- so we, we only see them in particular role and one of and that role isn't necessarily political leadership. Well, you know, and I think it's a representation issue too, in the same way I was thinking about sort of the success of Wonder Woman this summer. Like I'm not somebody who's really into superhero movies for a variety of reasons, mm-hmm. but it seemed to be really important to people to see a f- woman as not just like the member of a team of superheroes, but as a hero with agency of her own, to actually see that seemed to be really powerful. Now, when we see images of, say, a female president on a television show, it kind of suggests almost like sci-fi. Yes. You know, or we're in the future or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's so uncommon. And it's something I've struggled with even in my life, which is, uh, you know, when I was in high school, I ran for student council president. And on speeches day, I decided I would wear a man's suit. And I didn't think I was being transgressive. I didn't think I was cross-dressing. What I thought was that I had never seen a person become president of anything that didn't wear a man's suit. And so sometimes when I think about Hillary Clinton um, and the campaign and people calling her unlikable, I actually think what they really mean is unnatural or unfamiliar. <laughs> because. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's extraordinary, but it was unfamiliar to many people, you know. We've never seen anything like that. It's like when Katie Couric took over the, you know, the evening news and there were so many people that were mad because, oh my God, her voice sounds so high, (laughs) right? Yeah. But we were so unused to the idea that anybody could read the news, the evening news that was a lady, (laughs) right? Yeah. And so I think on some level, in addition to the fact that Hillary Clinton had the baggage of her husband and her entry into um, politics was so much later than say her husband's, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I think that itself is a problem. But in addition to all that, we're just completely unused to seeing women in that role. Um, and I don't think even if even when you think about it, you know, even assume even thinking about maybe the fact that our election um, had 
difficulties uh, in terms of, you know, I don't want to say that it was, you know, rigged, but who knows what happened right. in our election. But even if you assume that some percentage of people that were Trump voters did so not because of any like moral feeling about him, but because again, they were just so unused to it. Like it would never occur to them to vote for a woman. Some percentage of them voted because of sexism or misogyny, you know, even if it's a very low percentage, that's the difference between a win and a loss. <laughs> yeah, no, it's really fascinating. And, you know, I mean, I think your book is, you know, it's a funny book, but it's also about something dead serious, which is about, you know, A, slut shaming and B, you know, how women are perceived in the world of politics. Um, now, you pull off the story with a variety of different techniques, which were, which were Wonderful. You know, there's internal monologue, there's epistolary via email, of course, and even a choose your own adventure section. And was it fun to write? <laughs> yeah, it was fun as much as anything that I write can be fun at this point. It, you know, again, I've written four books for adults and also five books for younger readers. And at this point, it always just feels like work. <laughs> <laughs> I hate <laughs> I hate to say that, but but it does because you know I think the last time writing was fun for me, like really like fun was probably like maybe writing a diary in high school. <laughs> but now I think it's to me, um, and I don't. But it's it's kind of I make it sound like it's not joyless either. But it's, it's work. You're a writer. It's more. Yeah, you know, it's more this sort of endless thinking and turning over of of soil or whatever. It just is sort of, it's less fun um, than it looks. But I hope it reads fun, actually, because something I believe is, you know, I maybe naively that is that fiction still has some ability to sway hearts and minds. You know, like we have live in a world in which everybody's kind of just in an echo chamber. But if you read a book or a story about a character, um, you know, perhaps, perhaps you have a chance of reaching someone who is not like-minded to you. Right. And, you know, I am a big fan of fiction because I believe it can reveal a truth that we can't get at in the news and nonfiction. Um, so that's why, right. You know, you know, it's interesting because like Hillary Clinton has her book coming out in about two weeks, even, yes. which I'm, I'm definitely excited to read, but no one, but of course I am excited to read it. Yes. <laughs> you know, no one's going to pick that up. That isn't already like interested in her, probably somewhat sympathetic to her, right. you know, it will not reach anyone. It will reach plenty of people, but not anyone that wasn't probably inclined to be sympathetic to her story already. Well, hopefully your book will reach a broad section of the audience. The book is called Young Jane Young. It's both a delight to read and incredibly insightful about an issue that is as pervasive today as it was 20 years ago, how women in politics are judged. You can read more about this and other great books by women authors at 52 Weeks, 52 Books, 52Women.com and subscribe to the podcast at all good purveyors of podcasts. Gabrielle Zevin, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.